Unfiltered with Matt Farnsworth. I am with Michelle Smith here. She is a sober mom. She has quite a large following on Instagram, and she's a keynote speaker and a best-selling author. You have a book. It's called Living Sober, Living Free, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So I was really excited to have you on today because I've been watching your content after Sober Motivation shared a post of mine, some people I didn't even know existed on Instagram, to be honest, in the sobriety community started to um, started to reach out and say hello. And then I started seeing all these cool people pop up that had these amazing social media followings. I'd been kind of off the grid for a minute and then I, I, you popped up and I started looking at some of your content. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And her story seems very similar to mine, which I know a lot of the stories are similar in sobriety, but yours resonated with me, especially this latest post you did this morning. So I kind of wanted to just have you sort of introduce yourself, maybe what you're about, kind of give us a little bit of a backstory on who you were, maybe how things went down, how you ended up getting sober and, you know, kind of where you're at now, sort of a 30,000 foot overview and then maybe we can jump into some detail yeah absolutely so i'm michelle smith and like you said i'm an author and i do a lot of speaking i've been working in the field of addiction recovery and law enforcement for 22 years so it was a very high burnout high stress high like just fast-paced environment for me and of course like everybody you're trying to climb the corporate ladder so you're trying to you know, I became a workaholic is pretty much what happened to me as I dove into academics and then my career and eventually hit burnout mode. And so, you know, enter the mommy wine juice culture. I started to have children and I just started to replace my workaholism with alcoholism and just saw that my expectations for what I thought I could do before kids, I was falling short and I couldn't be that people pleaser, that perfectionist that I was conditioned to be as a child. I grew up in a house full of alcoholics and it was just one of those things that was a very invalidating environment. You know, if dad's sober, we play. If he's intoxicated, we hide. And I had the perfect example, Matt, of what not to be. And so I stayed away from alcohol for decades and kind of opened up Pandora's box and was like, well, if I would have become an alcoholic, it would have happened before my mid-30s, right? And so as we know, it rears its ugly head. My addiction was in her hibernation. I poked the bear. And my whole world was literally falling underneath me. And I know that there's no excuse for me picking up. But, you know, I started having health issues. I lost my mom as I became a mom. I hadn't been diagnosed with postpartum depression yet. There was just so many moving pieces. And alcohol was packaged and presented to me literally on a silver platter. Your mom just died. Of course you're grieving, Michelle. Here's some alcohol. And so everything that I was going through as I was navigating, the solution to my pain point was alcohol. And of course, it can be a slow and progressive disease until it literally takes your soul. And that was it for me. And I lived in a lot of shame and silence and secrecy because of my career. And how dare I do this? How could I be teaching people about addiction recovery and relapse prevention when I can't wait till it hits five o'clock and I can go home to the bottle? And so, you know, my story again, isn't, you know, we do have a very similar story of not one, not two, not three, but four times ending up in the hospital because my goal was to never stop drinking and, and using pills. It was simply to moderate and manage my addiction. And it took years and years of me falling flat, literally on my face and losing everything to say, Michelle, this does not serve you. There's no value that's being added to your life. And for me, I think the the moment that I really surrendered, you think it would be one of these hospital stays, but it was like mortality motivation because I didn't have my parents around anymore. They died really early. I was doing that same thing to my children. And 
that was the moment where I started to surrender. I didn't never stop drinking again because that would be a lie. But, you know, from walking into the rooms of AA, completely in denial, intoxicated, the whole thing, to walking out of rehab, the, the stories were so similar. The message was so similar. I was just ready to hear it. You know, we wait for these aha moments, these epiphanies. And it was my time, November 24th, 2016, that I made a handshake, handshake with God. And I was like, I'm never going to drink again. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but it's a non-negotiable. And from that moment forward, I haven't touched a drink or a drug at all. Wow. Yeah. I resonate with a lot of what you just said. I was in the hospital. I had a broken neck and broken wingtip vertebrae. It's a little bit different than a full-on broken neck. Nonetheless, I was in bad shape and... Of course, I signed myself out against uh, the hospital's best wishes, and I scooped up my broken my my clothes filled with broken glass, and I headed for the door, and I found the first bottle that I could find. So, I feel you. I've been <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. That hurts. Wow. So, really early on in your life, you kind of learned this behavior through osmosis, like the part of your life as a child. You saw the damage it, it did, but then it it's such a powerful chemical that once you start to use it to soothe that pain that we all feel, all your problems are instantly vaporized uh, until they come back tenfold the next day. So how did you... How did you manage to have this spiritual awakening? I mean, I know you went through some tough times, but that really triggered me to, to ask how, like the spiritual awakening. You said, I, I turned my life over to God. Was it just all the times that you'd fallen down and you were like, hospital stay, hospital stay? Like what actually clicked at that point? You know, it was just all of the things that added up. I just had this moment of stillness. And literally, it was so much about my limiting beliefs and what I believed to be true about alcohol, where I knew this was going to take me. I just had this moment of clarity and ease that it was a simple decision that I was going to be a non-drinker. And it flashed before my eyes of I'm literally killing myself and shame on me for my children to not have their mother because this is such a selfish disease. And so I just kind of took all of those little moments that were really big and just dumped it all out there at the hospital. It was just like, this is it. This is the only thing you can't do, Michelle, is drink. That leaves you a million possibilities of other things that you can do. And I can sit in the distress and the discomfort and the stillness and know that this too shall pass. And I am not a good human when I'm under the influence. I lie, I steal, I cheat. I do all the things that addicts and alcoholics do. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, it was, it just, it came, it was such an easy decision for me to make that I just can't do this. I'm tired. I'm tired of hurting people. I'm tired of not wanting to live anymore. And I don't want that for me. And I don't want that for the people who love me. That's a really powerful testimony. Um, I I like that. I, I'm I'm moved by that. I, I I often wonder how do we get ourselves into these situations. You know, I know alcohol, like you said, is a powerful drug. I mean, it's like it is a neurotoxin. We know that it is the only drug that is the prescription to heal the hangover. So how dangerous is that? It's crazy. I mean, you worked in law enforcement and, and, and here you were in using this and, and helping people, I guess. What was your job title? How did you work in the addiction field and then also, you know, develop this addiction? I mean, we hear about it happening all the time, by the way. It's not uncommon, I don't think. No, it's not uncommon at all. Um, you know, when people get up their high achievers and high profile positions, it's there's an expectation. There's license on the line, right? There's the public finding out you're a state employee. So it's, it's very much, Oh geez, if there's not like some type of like, you know, for lawyers, they have like the bar or like nurses have a certain program of they, you know, have a DUI. Like there's not a lot of 
options for people that are in high profile positions other than let's just sweep it under the rug, right? And so I was no different. And so how can a, a certified alcohol and drug counselor who's been doing this for decades say, you know what, I'm struggling myself and I don't know what to do. Michelle, it's as simple as what I just said, right? But to do that felt impossible. And so I had a lot of jobs and I still do work in the same field. And, you know, my jobs ranged from doing startups of substance abuse and mental health treatment programs within the Department of Corrections across two different states. And so my heart is in co-occurring disorder treatments. I worked for the specialty courts, veterans court, drug court, mental health court as a substance abuse counselor. I was a treatment court probation officer. So many things. I go with the sheriff's office and do street work in the communities. And it was triggering. It was overwhelming. I felt overwhelmed and depleted every night by me going home to my king size bed when this woman that I was moving from danger to safety with her children didn't even know if they were going to get into a shelter, let alone sleep on the streets and be sold. You know, and it was just it the stories and the trauma and so much of what I see and saw. Mm -hmm. It was really tough if you don't have a place to dump it and to process it. And it just kept building up because Michelle likes to stuff it. Michelle doesn't like to be a nuisance or an inconvenience to anybody. And I'm strong enough to deal with it. I wanted this profession and career that I'm so passionate about, but I wasn't taking care of myself. And we hear self-care, right? that buzzword how do you care for yourself you know I see somebody trying to commit suicide in the hole and I'm having to dispatch somebody to come help me but there's nowhere to process that later other than is that guy still alive or not and so I had to really start looking at what is self-care Michelle it's simply caring for yourself not when you're in crisis mode hydrate yourself talk to yourself kindly because you are listening you know, it was just make movement in your body. Just take 10 minutes if that's all you can spare to just collect your thoughts. But I just didn't take the time to utilize the tools I know work and I share with other people for myself, which is just, you know, hindsight, it's, it's 2020, it's ridiculous. Why didn't I pause, stop and think about this and implement some of it? But I was just go, 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 go. There was no slowing down until I was forced to slow down and take a look at my life. You hit a bottom. I mean, it happens, you know, I did too. And it's incredible the self-talk tape, tapes that we have. We all have this self-talk tape that was generated, I assume, when we were children. And, you know, we're getting into the emotional part of this too, the emotional sobriety part. We, we'll get there. But it's so interesting to see that we all have these moments where we've got these jobs that stress us out. We've got, I had very high... I had a high profile job as well because I would be in these intense situations screen testing it for, you know, multiple executives at Paramount Studios, things that were really, they were high stress. Um, and I never knew how to process dealing with that stress other than going and grabbing a drink in the evening with my friends, getting wasted, whatever, just to kind of take the edge off. And I think that happens often to a lot of people and they don't really realize what they're putting into their body. Uh, the, the, I think that the information is out there now telling people, here's what alcohol is. It's a neurotoxin. It's a poison. It's going to make you want to drink more. It's going to spike your uh, blood sugar. It's going to cause all kinds of trouble with your inflammation. There's, you know, Andrew Huber, Huberman, is it Uberman or Huberman? I think it's Uberman. I don't know if you've seen him, but he's got some great content on alcohol and, and millions of other things. The guy's brilliant. But how, you know, when you're in this and you're, you know, you're in this job, do you stop doing this? Okay, so you still do the same job, but were you, did you have to change out? Did you have to change up like what you do on a daily basis and how much you're in those stressful situations in order to like have that self-care? Yeah, I did. I had to step away. I mean, you know, even going to rehab, I'm like, I can't go to rehab. I've got two kids and I have this job, these two jobs. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you are not going to have a job and it won't matter if you don't go save your own damn life, Michelle, you know? 
Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, I had to step away. I had to take a leave of absence. And I think that is one piece that people don't hear enough is that this is covered under medical leave. If you have a job they, and you have an HR department, you have permission to go take care of yourself under this medical model that is just like mental health, that is just like fighting diabetes or having a child. And um, I had to, otherwise I was going to die. So I stepped away for a while and then I came back part time and just had to change things. My hours, I wasn't going to work two jobs in a maximum security prison, mental health by day, evening doing substance abuse evals. I just, I couldn't do it anymore or something had to give and it, it couldn't be my mental health anymore. And it couldn't be me driving myself to drink because I I have a sticky note. I don't do overwhelm. If that means over committing, I'd rather, if I don't feel spiritually and mentally fit to end up going to a holiday party, I'm not going to go because they're going to be more mad at me that I'm, you know, half dressed, stealing people's alcohol, doing all kinds of crazy things, wrapping myself around a telephone pole before I even get home. Other than I'm sorry, I'm going to have to sit this one out so that I can go next time. Right. Yeah. I had to start doing different refusal skills and coming up with different solutions to the real world and what I'm going to have to face in order to make it in this really boozy culture that I surround myself in. Yeah. Especially with a job like that, I can only imagine entering a maximum facility, maximum prison facility, like a, an actual prison like that going in. And you, at first, when you go in, I'm sure it's a little shocking. Like it would be for anyone. It's scary. It's daunting. It's, it's unknown. There's danger. And then after a certain period of time, you've got like, okay, the next, the next few days, it got easier three days in, and then two weeks in, it's pretty much just par for the course. You're, you're doing it. And you don't really realize that you've become immune to a lot of the things that you're seeing on a daily basis, which most people don't normally see. So I imagine that played a big role in the stress level that you would encounter when you were working in those situations and dealing with people who probably have a lot of addiction and a lot of mental illness. Does that trigger, can that trigger you personally when you're in that environment working? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when I find Pruno up in the ceilings of a relapse prevention class that I was teaching. And for those of you who don't know what Pruno is, it's homemade prison alcohol is -hmm. essentially what it is. Making the toilet, right? Um, They, oh, they do it everywhere. Everywhere. Okay. Big dumpsters, garbages, bowls, Mm -hmm. anywhere you can, anything they can get and they can have access to and find, they'll do it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. I would imagine there's, there's that need to, especially in a situation like that, if you're in prison to, you know, numb the the pain of being in there, which kind of brings us around to, you know, the emotional part of it. You know, why do we drink? Why, what was the pain that we had? What caused us such mental anguish that we wanted to cover it up? I know that alcohol makes you want to continue to use it no matter what the next day, it's going to be the prescription, like I said, to make the hangover go away. But beyond that and beyond the predisposition, there's something else, right? I believe that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And it took a long time for me to pull back that lens and take an aerial perspective view of my life and my circumstances to say, what was it? What was it that made you just start reaching for this external solution to this internal problem? And I had to be sober a period of time before I even got it. And I still am putting pieces together. I like reverse engineer and pick up the breadcrumbs to find out what it was because I knew that I couldn't really do the work and do all the steps if I didn't realize other than, like you said, predisposition and it's addictive, right? And it's everywhere and it's glorified and normalized. And so for me personally, those things that it was, was I just buried myself in my work. I didn't do the bereavement work of losing my second parent. You know, I was just like a deer in headlights and I refused to go to the bereavement groups and the hospice groups and you know, oh, I'm fine. I can just talk to a coworker. And the overwhelm, I was exhausted. I wasn't taking care of myself. And, you know, the loss, the health issues, the bereavement, those things just piled up to exhaustion. I just couldn't say no. 
And I needed to learn to do that because I would stretch myself so thin. I'd, I'd always tease my girlfriends that have kids and say, I'm not Elastigirl. Like I'm overly committing. I'm, I'm doing too much because I just want to make everybody outside of me happy. And it's okay if I'm not happy as long as I'm vicariously living through other people's happiness, which sounds insane, but it was my truth. I was I was raised to be a people pleaser and to serve and to be a caretaker and that creates codependency. And, you know, that was kind of how I really started just to numb is that instead of addressing some of these things, I would drink them away. Right. And it's like, I'm never going to learn how to set a boundary if I continue to drink my responses away, you know, I'm always going to be a caretaker. And codependent, if I don't. Wow, that's cool. Like that's a great. What you just said was powerful. Um, I'm not going to drink. Tell me about drinking your responses away. I'm going to have to go back and play that back to to listen to that because my wife says this all the time. She was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic rather, and she would people please. You know, we we are base. We're people pleasers, and she would please to the point that she would have to stuff her real emotions. She would just, she said, I would just stuff everything. It would, I wouldn't tell people what I really thought. And I would just go along with whatever it was that they wanted. You want to go eat at this restaurant? Fine. I'll go just because I want to please, even though I don't really want to go there. You want to go camping? Fine. I'll go along, but I don't really want to go. That's not something I really want to do. And it, it, it piles up, it piles up and I myself was also a people pleaser. I was seeking, I think, validation, show business, this, that, the other. And, um, you know, when you don't get it, it hurts. And rejection hurts too. And so when we look at, like you said, uncovering these emotional, you know, issues that we have, it's like peeling an onion. It, there's so many there's it's so deep and until we get really deep and we take a look at it and i don't think you really can until like you said you're you know four or five years into sobriety because you're just trying to learn how to live right for the first three or four years and then like year five you're kind of like oh i'm i'm really starting to to get into a groove now and i feel like that is kind of where everything starts to sort of settle um do you think so too, like around year five or so? I mean, I've heard that said quite a bit in AA as well. You might've heard that as well. Around year five, we really start to hit our, our groove and like our head pops out. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the first year for me, almost the second year too, it was just like literally staying sober is a full-time job. Like that is my job is to refrain from any consumption of any mind-altering chemical. And the space that that takes, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. So plugging stuff in about learning about addiction and sobriety and that other people's stories are important and I'm not alone. Like I had to do, I had to just plug it in. Podcasts like this, you know, books, the big books, meetings, anything and everything, counseling. I could do medication management. Like throw the tools at me because I am willing to do whatever it takes in order to find my way out of this and to live a life I'm proud of again. And so, yeah, you know, everyone has those peaks and valleys and, you know, plot twist. Here's somebody that's, you know, COVID. (laughs) Nobody would have thought, right? Um, People either got sober or they didn't, or they lost a lot of weight or they didn't. Like it was just this very black and white kind of life, you know, when we are faced with situations that we're powerless over and all we can do is really just, squeeze the lemons in our eyes, right? Make the situation worse. And that's, that's just not an option. And I hope that for these, for us, these listeners, like it's not an option. If you want sobriety, it is there. You want recovery. It is there for the taking. And it is really freaking hard work and it's worth it work. It's so worth it. Yeah. And and you, you work with a lot of women and I know that and, and you um, have been an inspiration to a lot of women to stop drinking. And, and you mentioned something really interesting about the resources are available. If you have a full-time job, if they, if there's an HR department, 
even if there's not, if you have a supportive, if you're a, a housewife and you take care of the kids and you take care of a house, which is probably one of the hardest jobs in the world, not to mention having a job on top of that. But if you need recovery, you have to go and seek it out. You need to do it because like you said, it's not going to get any better. This is only going to get worse. So for those women that you work with, do you find that there's a lot of shame for them to try to admit that and come forward and say, I need to take care of this? What stops them? What's the thing that you would give them advice to say, hey, you know, here's why you need to do this and, and really make an effort. And here's what's going to happen if you do, because it's not going to get any better. What would you say to them? And how do you work that when you're working with them to help them jump into a recovery program and start to heal? Right. I think it's a lot of us. It's the, we overwhelm. We don't say no. We don't set boundaries. We don't take care of ourselves. We think self-care is selfish. All of those things I think really lead to it. And I think that there's a lot of shame that us moms hold, but why can't we do everything? Why can't we juggle? You know, we're given this freedom to go outside and work and have a career and contribute financially in addition to all the ways that we contribute as well. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, but we don't get anything eliminated off our plate. Like it's not an even trade. It's you, okay, go work. And then at five o'clock you're on mommy mode, witching hour, everyone's a hot mess. Everyone's tired. Traffic was a nightmare. You know, sports haven't started. You're not fighting with bedtime routines or any kind of sports yet. It's just, it's such a hard season of life. And, you know, that's why I really encourage women that I work with, how can you simplify the process? I had to have my kiddos only do one sport each because I wasn't carpooling, which was a solution to come to find out that you can't do two and three sports. I just don't have the bandwidth. And that doesn't make me a bad mom. What makes me a bad mom is drinking myself to death, trying to balance what it is they want, right? I wasn't running the show in my household. They were being the boss of me, which I'm a great mom. I just was a little cupcake and I would just bend over whenever they were just like, oh, mom, I want this and I want that. No, this is the bedtime routine. These are the rules. And this is how it's going to be. I ended up taking a parenting class that was amazing of learning how to parent so that I don't sit there and cry myself to sleep because my kids said something they didn't, you know, they were mad at me and they said something that they didn't love me. And it's like, of course they love you. Stop it. Right. So us moms, we're overwhelmed. We are doing too much and we've got too much pride and too much shame to say, I need something removed from my plate. I'm struggling. We're all doing it silently. And if the more people who talk and say enough is enough, or you're not alone, that opens up the door for them to hear more about other people's story and how they get a house cleaner, how they take a parenting class, how they use their drinking money for a gym membership, right? A food service, a cleaning lady, whatever. It's a real thing out there for, for fatherhood as well. But for motherhood, it's, it's the shame and the secrecy and the pride is really what it comes down to. Yeah, that's a, a great explanation. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that feel that way. And, and they also, you know, kids are not, it's a hard, it's the toughest job. It is the toughest job. I've got two. They're going to be, they're 19 and 17. And wow, it's, uh, they're fantastic but they will try you, you know, and you have to be the person that is in charge and they will try to undermine that at times unconsciously, I believe. And you hit the nail right on the head with that. It's, you have to be in charge and you have to take care of yourself. I, I agree. It's so easy to set all of your needs aside when you're so focused and in mothers with their nurturing, with their nature of being super nurturing are going to fall victim to that probably a lot faster than the dads. Yeah. And, and so great. That was great. I, I um, I think that I, I kind of want to talk about your book and your creativity as well, because you were inspired through obviously this, this life of yours that came to this screeching halt because of alcohol and you decided, okay, I got sober. I've got this story to tell. 
you were inspired to help people, I'm, I'm sure. How did that work? How did you decide, I'm going to write a book, here's what it's going to be about, and here's my inspiration? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I started to recover out loud a little over a year into my sobriety. And it was really hard for me to be completely honest, because working in corrections, you can't have pictures of your family, you can't have the social media. And so I was a chameleon, I hid behind the walls with the inmates, like my life was just always secretive. When I was younger, We, we couldn't say what was really going on in the house, right? Then I get into this line of work. And then all of a sudden, I open up a social media account, and I'm terrified. So I block all the people I know just in case they find me because the algorithm, you know, I started using my Instagram as like a journal and a reflection of just documentation. And I think that a lot of people don't do that. They don't take the selfies of day one where they look like a complete hot mess. I mean, you know, I delete that stuff and I delete the drunk videos, but it's like, you know, they can't, I find them every once in a while. Mm-hmm. As you can I'll put them, some of them on my grid. Some of them I saw I- that today. I saw that was a pretty, pretty intense post today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got some gnarly photos, but I just, you know, in time, I think that they'll get leaked out mm-hmm. um, when I'm ready. But, you know, I just wanted to do something different. And such a piece of this, honestly, was accountability to begin with on my part. If I start saying this stuff out loud and I start, you know, saying my sobriety date, like, I'm shining light on the gremlins. I have accountability. It's not policing. I have people rooting for me and supporting me, you know? And so that's where it kind of, I kind of eased into it. And, you know, the journal and the book, like, you know, practice makes permanent, not perfect. I am no longer striving for, for perfection. It's just unrealistic. I set myself up, I get egg on my face and it turns into a, a circus. And so It's so important for us to track, right? To track what's working, what's not working. You know, when we get paid every other weekend, is that when we're relapsing, right? There's patterns. There's, we're leaving ourselves breadcrumbs. And if we just look at a slip or a relapse, if we reset our clock, if we're clock people, you know, sobriety tracking, it's like, look at the lesson. How can I use this to strengthen my recovery moving forward? It's like a a little baby when they're like trying to do tummy time or trying to crawl. They lie there for a few minutes, but they get up and they don't give up. They keep going. And this is what this journey, that's why it's a journey. And you're creating a lifestyle is that, you know, it's, you're going to have trials. You're going to have setbacks and it's going to be really freaking hard. And sometimes it's going to be really easy and eerie. And that journal that I created is just simple, less than five minutes a day to bookend your day. Start with intention, end with gratitude, right? Bring it back full circle. What was working? What wasn't working? What are you going to do different tomorrow? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, yeah. Don't be so hard on yourself and learn and don't self-sabotage because we both know you'll go right down that shame spiral to that bottomless bottle of hell and we shame ourselves. Our goal is to not drink, right, Matt? And then yeah. we shame ourselves and we drink more as a punishment. I mean. It doesn't what? make any sense, but I guess that's the idea of what addiction is, right? It's, we, we set ourselves up because our, our, you know, our serenity is inversely proportional to our expectations. So if we expect the world, which I would, and I expected perfection very often. And I think I did that on purpose at times. Because it would give me that reason to go and drink and have a good time. And we do relapse long before we ever actually pick up the drink. It doesn't happen just, oh, that day I woke up and I relapsed that day. I didn't drink for 13 years. And one day they were bringing tequila shots through a bar that I was shooting a movie in. And I just grabbed one off the tray and shot it. 13 years. And... You know, it started long before that. It started six months before that. The thinking, the getting out of writing anything down, journaling anything, living near bars, smelling the smells, the people, the places and the things. I started hanging out with different people. It all changed. And the consequences were, well, that big car accident that I had. So I totally feel you on all those fronts. Um, so your book is really, I'm. 
it sounds like it's it's fantastic. It's helping a lot of people. How did you get in? Like, I know it's a journal and, and you kind of, but this is like a book. I mean, you wrote a book, you put it out. It has um, a lot of people buying it, following it. What is it about and how does, how, how is it helping people? So I have a couple different books. I have one that um, I talk about that's um, leading more towards entrepreneurship that's called All In. Mm-hmm. And so that one's just being a woman in recovery and building a business and a career and how I manage my recovery and self-care. And so that one has just been really, really powerful and, you know, has given me a platform and a title of best-selling author to really extend my reach to get to more people, to let them know that they're not alone, you know, and that we can thrive and that even if we are professionals, you know, and we get our wrists slapped or we get our license pulled or we have to jump through these hoops, doing that is so much better than avoiding all of it because one, we just wait to get caught, right? It's the ifs. It's I haven't yet or if this happens. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, it's going to happen. It just ends up happening in different ways. And so we get to decide when enough is enough and if this is adding value to our life. And so that's what I touch on in the book. Uh, what else? What else would you like to touch on that you think would be valuable for, you know, people who have you know, just gotten sober or, um, you know, are trying to, you know, maybe, maybe they're just, they're just trying, you know, right They're they're in that period where they're just trying to get sober. You mentioned people go back to it. Um, you know, they, they have these relapses and it happens around times maybe where they get paid and they can sort of define when it may happen by looking at patterns. You mentioned patterns, any advice on how to check out those patterns, look at those patterns and understand when they're going to happen and start to try to manage them. Right. And I think that's why journaling, like when people say, you know, journaling, whenever I hear the word sobriety, it's like, okay, I'm going to start meditating and eating kale and drinking grease smoothies and matcha and going to 12 steps. You know, it's like, you just have to figure out what works for you, right? It's like, this all isn't promised. This is all something you have to show up. You know, we hear that slogan. It's like, this is, this is rented. That's never owned. And we have to show up every single day, right? Every 24 hours, we all start with a fresh, clean slate. What are we going to do? Right? Like you, I had a couple years, I had months and then, Oh, got back out there. Like, you know, Oh, I can moderate. Okay. So you showed yourself you could moderate once, but do you really want to try this hard every single time to measure and to drink water in between and have, you know, yeah. That stuff's just bullcrap. If you have to work that hard to keep something that's killing you, that is destroying you from the inside out, we have bigger problems, right? Mm-hmm. And so I really challenge everybody who's listening is that, you know, and I know we all have to go through our own thing. And I was stubborn as hell. I was so stubborn and in denial. And the thing is, is that why are we chasing moderation? Why are we trying so hard to keep this, this poison in our life? You know, and until I got off the hamster wheel and decided that it was a non-negotiable, it cleared up so much emotional, mental, and spiritual capacity for me that I could focus on people who I love, learning to not hate myself, but like myself. And hopefully someday I'll love myself. You know, it's like, do eliminate like take that out of the equation so that you don't have to have the devil and the angel and yeah people think it's boring to be in you know early sobriety or to be a person in recovery what do you do for fun the same damn thing i did all the time i just switched the drink that i had in my hand Mm -hmm. and you know i cliff jump now i skydive i go and speak like there's a million different things that i've been able to do i've gotten Every goal that I have wanted to achieve, whether it's travel somewhere, meet somebody that's completely out of my reach, I have accomplished all of that within my sobriety and really only a quarter of my sobriety. I'm I'm dreaming bigger. How can I have bigger impact? How can I help more people? How can I extend my reach? Because people need to hear that. And so that's one thing that I would say for the listeners is just, you know, why are we striving for moderation and, you know this is a progressive disease, you know, and this disease does not discriminate and nobody is immune. And, you know, look at you and I, right. It's, 
we might look like we have it all together, but you know, anyone can present as a, as a pretty package on the outside and literally be dying on the inside. And so don't wait for a rock bottom because that didn't stop either one of us. How many rock bottoms did we have? Right. Oh, just keeps going. It's progressive. 13 years I didn't drink. And the moment I pick it up six months later, I'm, I mean, I'm drinking every day, two weeks in, three weeks in. It did not take long. So I picked up right where I left off. Mm-hmm. And kind of the reason why is because there was no spirituality. So 13 years, I kind of just I white knuckled that. I was like, I'm not going to drink. And I, I didn't. You know, I was like, I have two kids. I can't drink. And had this amazing psychiatrist stephanie herring at cornerstone who said you know it would have been better if you just drank honestly it would have been because the white knuckling it is almost harder to do emotionally <laughs> and i thought she's probably right the bottom would have happened sooner and so the spirituality wasn't there i went to aa 13 years you know i went to AA for for the for, at the beginning of the 13 years i went but i went as a as a get off my back card. So all the people around me wouldn't bother me anymore. Like just, I, I went, okay, I went, I went to, hey, it's fine, whatever, I did it. And then I stopped going and I just white knuckled it. And then that second time around when I crashed that car and I, I ended up breaking my neck and that, it, it changed me because I had a near-death experience. I still drank even though I had a near-death experience right after that. But once I got into recovery, it started to work on me. I think that we are, it happens afterward. It takes some time. Like it doesn't happen immediately. It, you have to give it some time. When you first get sober, it gets harder before it gets easier because you you take that chemical away and now you're stuck with this person that's raw and they're emotional and they're struggling to figure out how to live their life without this chemical that made them feel good. And that's where I started to say, okay, can I find spirituality? Now I'm willing to look at the group in there and I'm willing to say, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I started to actually feel it. But prior to that, I was just making it up. I was just going through the motions. Yeah, I'll say this. Okay, I'll hold your hand. Okay, go be done. Um, and, and I started to say, yeah, I need to change. I need to change. And, and that spiritual awakening was slow. But then when it happens and you turn it over, don't you find that when you turn it over, your will in life that there's such a, a burden that's been lifted that you don't have to carry alone, would you say? Absolutely. And that's yeah. exactly kind of like the same way. It's just a different way of saying that like it's a non-negotiable, right? I'm embracing recovery. I need recovery. And it, this is, I can't do this alone, Right. And so I think too, it's like, you know, we feel like we have to be bad enough or horrible in order to do anything and to take a look at our relationship with alcohol. For both of us, it's like, okay, we walk into the rooms because that's what we're told as alcoholics and addicts we're supposed to do. And so that's what I did in rehab. My family's like, I don't know what else to do with you. I didn't know what to do with me. And it's like, this is our last Hail Mary. And if this doesn't work, she's screwed. We're, we don't know what else to do with her. And it didn't work. Right. It wasn't that it didn't work. It was that I, I wasn't, I wasn't spiritually ready. Right. I wasn't emotionally. And I still was chasing the idea of maybe someday because forever scared the hell out of me. And I didn't want to be, because I knew if I couldn't drink again, I was an alcoholic. Right. And I now use that title with pride that keeps me. I'm, I'm a person who can't drink ever. And if I do, I don't come back. And so I, I'm proud to be a person in recovery because it took me that many times in order to, you know, to get to that place where eventually I'm going to fit in perfect. I earned my seat. You know, I used to say, oh, I'm not that bad. Somebody else needs my seat. That's just a bunch of crap, right? That was just me lying to myself. And so stop waiting for these yets. Stop waiting for something bad to happen like it did for us. You know, it's one of those things that, People don't, if they don't have a reason to stop, they just, they don't want to, right? Because there's nothing bad that's happened. But once you get so addicted and bad things happen, you can't stop drinking. Even after all of our almost fatalities and losing everything, 
It's insanity to hear us. And we still walked out of the hospital against medical advice, both of us. I just went to the 7-Eleven where I literally was struggling across the street and somebody bought me alcohol because mm-hmm. nobody picked me up, right? Yeah. That's insane. That's yeah. addiction. That's the disease right there. And don't yeah. think that any of you listening, this can't happen to you guys because it is, Yeah. it will, it can, and it does. If your car gets towed and you think you might have a problem, get help because that would be the time to do it. That would be a lot easier than holding your neck in a yellow cab, making sure it doesn't fall off in a hospital gown with boxers on with blood everywhere. Keep in mind, I had blood all over me. It was covering me. I was in shards of glass. I had uh, 25 staples in my forehead and I dropped my stuff off, stuff off at the residence and I just dumped it in the room. I walked around the corner like you. I went to the liquor store that I'd been going to. I looked, it looked like a, a slasher movie. It was crazy. I walked through the door, bought liquor, went upstairs. They said, don't drink. If you drink, you're probably going to die. Drank the entire bottle, passed out on the bed, woke up. Obviously, the blood had gone and ran everywhere because it thins your blood. But when I woke up the next day, I still didn't think I had a problem. And I think it's because it's the only disease that tells us we don't have it. And so, like you said, it's non-negotiable. That's one way of saying it's the only disease that you know, is going to tell us we don't have it. So that's why I think AA works so well is when you do admit that you have that problem on a daily basis, you're, you're reminding yourself, I have this problem. And uh, I used to fall away from that. But the spirituality part of it is really an interesting, interesting thing because it kind of allows you to have that, that humility, I think for me. Um, and I wonder how you feel about that. What did the spiritual aspect of being able to bring that into play? What did that, what did that do for you? Yeah. You know, I always just having that power greater than myself of somebody who believes in me without judgment, without, you know, comparison, without that, you know, that, that shame, it was just, I was able to like, give my the hard things in my life over to God, right? And so it was a sounding board for me. It was just like acknowledgement, Michelle, that you don't have to be, you get to decide, right? And you get to make that decision and then release that over to somebody else that it's going to be really, really hard. And we can still do really hard things. So, you know, I started going back into church too, you know, and I was born Catholic and I have found that again. And it's like just finding people, right? Because I think when we are looking at our relationship with alcohol, this is the thing that is really, I think it's simple for people to understand is that if you are wondering if you have a problem with alcohol, you already know the answer because people who don't struggle with alcohol don't wonder if they have a problem with alcohol. Right. right? And -hmm. it's like, that's all the information you need to know in order to take a look at your relationship and people, besides the fact that people think it's boring, which is ridiculous. You just have a lot more time now because now you're not hustling, chasing, drunk, hung over, you know, all those things. You get so much of your life back that the other pieces is that, I'm not going to have any friends because we've surrounded ourselves around people who, you know, we're always drinking. So if you ask your drinking buddies, if you have a drinking problem, what the heck do you think they're going to say? So it's like start doing things that don't involve alcohol because other people are going to be involved in it and they're not going to be drinking and you meet your people. And so I met people at church groups, you know, I met people in the rooms. I've met people hiking and skiing and moms that don't drink and don't subscribe to mommy juice culture too. And so there's just your eyes, you focus on everything that's going well and right in the world. I used to walk into restaurants and everybody, right? A blanket statement. Everybody drank because that's all I wanted to see. Yeah. Blink my eyes a couple of times and you relook. The majority of people aren't drinking alcohol. It's just we tune into the people who are because it's the scarcity thing. I can't do it anymore because I can't handle my booze. Boo hoo right? I'm an alcoholic and I'm grateful that I know now that I'm going to die. And this thing is slowly killing everybody who ingests it. And I'm just, I'm not going to look back and say, I lost, you know, 
15 years of my life to this thing. I have how many more years to live sober, right? And embrace this lifestyle that I love myself so much now that I don't want to ever drink again. And you said that earlier. It's like, you know, I love the life that I live and I love recovery. It's like, we are cool people. We do hard work us, those who, you know, go into recovery because if you don't, you don't really ever have a chance to do the work or an opportunity or a reason to do the work. Right. And so if you learn to love yourself, learn where you're falling short and where you need help, you, you do find your footing and your foundation and self-love and respect that you now don't have to, you don't need to go and ingest a mind altering chemical when we hit a lockdown because we have friends, we have a network and we know where our meetings are. We know how to take care of ourselves, right? Yeah. We have other ways of surviving and thriving that we may have not had before. Absolutely. And, and the humility, just you said it right there. If you have the humility to really look at yourself and say, Hey, here's where I'm struggling and honestly look at it because I think denial happens so quickly. It's like so easy to say, Oh no, I don't have that problem. It's okay. It'll go away tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll quit next weekend. I only have, you know, two beers a week. It, it, it never works. It always changes. And you have to be able to look, I think, deep down inside. And that's where the spirituality came in for me was to, to say, I'm able to look at the darkest parts and say, look, this is where I'm really ugly. I'm not a good person in these places and I've done these terrible things. And that's, I think, where the program works as well is when we, you know, take that step to make that inventory and share that inventory. It does remove a burden, but how deep can we go? And I think the further you can go, the deeper that you can go, the more healing you're able to do. And, and you do realize, like you said, this is not a boring thing. I had the greatest life. I used to get lost in that Hollywood culture of, you know, with these people that, really there's not much moral value. A lot of the people that you find that are super big celebrities that I've met and spent time with were partially mentally ill and they all had addictions. They weren't super, super happy. And a lot of them were suicidal. And so it's really the spirituality I think that came into play for me that made me feel whole and also gave me the gifts of a sober life which is filled with fun things. It's not boring people. If you want to get sober and you think my life's going to be boring. No, the boring thing to me is now getting drunk and having to, you know, Netflix all morning long, trying to nurse a hangover. That's really accomplishing nothing in your life. And, and look at yourself. You've accomplished all these amazing things post recovery, traveled all over, met all these people uh, that you probably, you, you think that would have happened if you hadn't been sober. I don't think so either. For me, the same thing. Changed my careers, met a new woman, fell in love, met, you know, and, and just had this wonder, have this wonderful relationship, ended up with custody of both of my kids. They both moved to Tennessee with me from California. And here I was, this deadbeat felon who had got this felony DUI and was in huge trouble. And even the felony has been removed. It's been, you know, exonerated. So it's, it's incredible to see how, with the gifts that sobriety gives you, you know, it, it's just... And it keeps coming. And I feel that's God. I feel that is God saying, good job. I gave you that second chance. Make the most of it. And what a shame it would be to let that go, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Working in the prisons too, it's like I saw so many ghosts, like, you know, women coming in with DUIs and losing their children. And that that could have been me, right? It's like we think, oh, horrible people, the people that go to prison. No, you know what? Anyone's capable of doing something horrible under the influence, which is 80% of the population that gets convicted is either under the influence or doing something that's related to a crime that's drug or alcohol related. And it's like, this can happen to anybody, anybody, anybody. And like you said too earlier, it's like our rock bottoms, like we don't have to wait because what I've noticed, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that I'd say, well, I'll stop drinking if it becomes a problem in my marriage. I'll stop drinking if I ever call in sick to work. If I ever get a DUI. Like your boundaries and your expectations of the consequences as a result of our consumption, just it changes bit by bit by bit. And so when I talk to ladies, they're like, your story is so inspiring, but I'm not like you. And I'm like, 
you're, you can get there. This can be a horror story for you as well. So don't compare where I'm at to your relationship with alcohol, right? And really think about what is the non-negotiable? Why are you doing this? And what's going to happen when you do cross that line? Because it's not really if, it's when. This is addictive. Everybody gets hooked if they don't take an intervention or a stance at some point. And that's what I love about this new movement. You know, September is National Recovery Month. It's like, you know, we can look at our relationship with alcohol or any substance at any time. Sober curious, right? Alcohol free people who just choose this lifestyle versus get sober and then live a life in recovery. There's all these terms that get thrown around and misused. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I don't care if you're doing a dry challenge or you've, you have 36 years in recovery. If you're not drinking for whatever reason, freaking good for you. I'm so proud of you. And yeah. just for the health of it, just because we don't like the way it makes us feel or how we show up is absolutely 100% enough of a decision to stay away from it. And you should be respected. You, you know, you shouldn't have backlash or adult bullying or being made fun of because I mean, those days are over. They need to be over. And that I just, I am so stubborn and confident in my recovery that I don't have time for those type of people. Shame on them, you know, because we judge ourselves enough for everybody else. We don't need anybody else to do that for us. It's like, you know, you have friends that, you know, do the whole 30, I'm, I'm sure, right? It's mm -hmm. like, oh no, eat the brownies or do this, come on, you know, and taunt them. It's good for you. You stop smoking. Awesome. Great for you. I bet you're feeling a lot better. Yeah. You know, those are the responses that we deserve. And until we get our social circle of people who are going to support us, listen to these podcasts, right? Follow inspirational Instagram accounts, hit a meeting, whether it's virtual in Australia or, you know, you're going somewhere local if you feel like you can do that in your own community. There is community and there is recovery and there's enough to go around for everybody mm -hmm. it's not a scarcity issue no you will find your tribe it's going to take some time it's not easy at first you might have to learn to be a little bit of a lone wolf and that's okay you can like you said great advice fill it with positive things go and get a gym membership like you said work out uh try that uh other activities whatever you may like to do um get out of the house um, go to meetings, all of the things you're talking about are very, you have to change it. Cause like we know nothing changes if nothing changes. Right. And so you have to make those efforts. And in, at first it is hard. I, I agree with you. It was very hard at first because everything's changing and evolving and it can be very lonely because those friends do leave, don't they? Yeah. They're like friends you used to drink with are no longer there. And so you do have to do that, but it does get better. It does get better. It actually becomes amazing but you got to put the work in, right? Yep. And the people who leave, I mean, people are going to leave if you drink, people are going to leave if you don't, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, both ways if you do or you don't drink. And I think when people do eliminate themselves, it's just easier for you that you don't have to do it. And it's like, that's just honestly clearing space for other people like us and other people along your journey that are supposed to be there instead. I used to think that like, I had to keep in contact with my college roommates and my old coworkers and it was such a balance, right? I felt just overwhelmed. And I'm like, okay, here's your sober train. People are going to come on and they're going to come off at different parts of your life and in your journey. And they're there for a reason for a period of time. It might not be forever and that's okay. If we have abandonment issues or we can't, you know, we struggle with saying goodbye, like we can work on that, but people aren't here forever. And so find your people and those are your people that are going to root for you and, and love you unconditionally, regardless of what you choose to drink on a day-to-day -day basis. hundred percent. Well, you are very inspirational, but thank you so much. You have truly inspired some people today. I'm absolutely sure of it. If those of you out there, if, if you want to find Michelle, you want to find her book, you want to go to, or you want to go to, and I'm, getting older. So I need to put these on. You want to go to recovery is the new black. Check out her Instagram. She's got a link tree there. She's got some really cool stuff happening in her life and her recovery and her sobriety and her work and her 
books. So go check her out. Do you have a website? I do. Recoveryisthenewblack.com. That's awesome. Yeah. And I have those same glasses sitting right here on my desk. Mm-hmm. They're cool. <laughs> we have three pairs of the same ones. Look at that. Oh, you're just like me. I, I'm like, I have like five pairs of glasses next to my nightstand. I know, right? I then I lift them and I can't find them, and half the time they're on my head. And- yeah, then I lift like the the middle piece of my car. I lift it up. There's like four pairs of glasses. Oh my gosh, I love it. But yeah, I'll have to come back and do a 2.0 or a part two follow up. To I would love in. to have you. I'd love to have you back on. I, there's a lot I would like to touch on. It's hard to get to the bottom of everything with someone like yourself that has such a similar story, and you're just so passionate and effective and you've got such a cool career um there's just so much going on that i want to unpack but it's so hard to do that in an hour so yeah if you want to jump back on in a month or so and you know rock a follow-up i'm more than happy to do that maybe we could even outline here's a few things we should touch on that are going to be beneficial for people out there that we couldn't go in depth on you know um there's gonna be would be cool too is if you know the listeners want to just shoot you a message of just like questions or, you know, spitfire, anything. I mean, if there's topics or, you know, roadblocks that they're seeing and they want some support from you and I around it, I mean, whatever, I'm here to, to, you know, serve your community and to support them and and doing whatever it is along their journey that they're here to do. So it's awesome to be here. And it's so cool to finally be able to connect with you and talk and, have these meaningful, really important conversations. And thank you for all the work you're doing and the vulnerability. Literally, I remember that's how I connected with you initially um, was on sober motivation and seeing that picture and that transformation. Those things are powerful. And it takes a lot of hard work behind the scenes and what you're doing too. So I want to say thank you. Oh, Even thanks. if it's for me on behalf of the sober community. Thanks. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. And thank you for being on the show. You've given people some fantastic information to uh, take away and go and help them, you know, try to start recovery or continue their recovery. And like you said, we'll ask some people if they have questions for us and maybe we can do a follow up.